Historically, they are not the best of friends. They've gone to war more than a few times. In the last two decades or so, things have been better, but there's still plenty that the two don't see eye to eye on, whether it's Cyprus, or the GNC, or the refugee crisis. But they are neighbors, and that means they have more in common than they realize. And when two people from Greece and Turkey meet, that becomes obvious. Many people from both sides of uh, the GNC uh, have uh, understood and uh, underlined the common things that we have and we share. And one of these is the relation between our languages. That's Veroniki Krakoni. I am Veroniki. I joined uh, Global Voices back at 2011 as a translator. She soon became our Greek translation editor. And outside of Global Voices? Uh, normally, I work as a travel agent and freelance translator. Turkey might be right next door for Veroniki in Greece, but two years ago she traveled oceans away, only to be reminded that Greece and Turkey, figuratively and a little bit literally, speak each other's language. You see, Global Voices also has a Turkish translation editor, or talk. And in 2015, he, Veroniki, and many other contributors gathered together in the Philippine city of Cebu for a citizen media conference. Global Voices, if you're wondering, is a virtual community of passionate people from around the world who report on the online conversations happening in their regions. We host a summit every two years or so in a different locale. And in 2015, about 120 of us gathered in Cebu to discuss the future of our organization, it has to do with everyone here who's talking and listening, everyone who's building and producing things, everybody who works together. The future of media and the internet. Our uh, internet is very much now uh, isolated from what's happening in the rest of the world. And, let's be honest, have a little fun. But back to Veroniki. Uh, we were going out for uh, for a drink. We were getting to know with uh, with uh, with other people, and it was uh, my chance to speak with uh, Ortak because uh, actually we realized that we ca we had uh, come with the same flight in Cebu, but we were unaware of it. I was uh, I was sitting in the bar, and uh, I was uh, telling Ortak Greek words with Turkish uh, roots, trying to to show him that if I, even if I was going to to Turkey for for a trip, etc., I could utter some words and uh, being understood by his compatriots, and he, he seemed to understand. Uh, every word and say the relevant word or phrase in Turkish as well. In this world of ours, certain groups want to emphasize the differences between us, making these human connections across countries, cultures, and languages even more important. Because they challenge our beliefs, they teach us about others and about ourselves. They remind us that we really aren't so different from one another, that we are more than capable of bridging what divides us, and that the world might be bigger, or depending on how you look at it, smaller than we thought. Welcome to Into the Deep, 
the Global Voices podcast where we dig deep into one topic that isn't getting the media coverage it deserves. I'm Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. And today, we're digging deep into Global Connections. Just like Greece and Turkey, Iran and the United States are not what you'd call friendly countries. To name a few of the bumps in their diplomatic road, the last 60 years have seen the U.S. help orchestrate the overthrow of Iran's democratically elected leader, a popular uprising that toppled the U.S.-backed Shah, a hostage crisis in which 52 Americans were held for 444 days, an American warship that shot down an Iranian passenger plane killing 290 people, and the existing tensions over Iran's nuclear program. For many Americans, it's hard to see Iran beyond the filter of animosity between the two governments. I was a teenager during the revolution, and I found it really interesting, but from a very distant point of view, where I grew up, there were a lot of Iranian engineering students. I remember the protests against the Shah, and they would march through the town wearing like paper bags over their heads so they wouldn't be recognized and I, I remember it vaguely and of course the hostage crisis but for me Iran was a just not a topic of concern. That's Tori Egerman, a Global Voices contributor based in Amsterdam. Hi my name's Tori Egerman. She's from the U.S. and writes for us about Iran. When I'm not doing that kind of work, I am telling stories at local storytelling holes, I guess you would say, here in Amsterdam, and I am writing a novel. About 10 years ago, Tori and her husband, who is Iranian, moved to Iran. She would end up living there for four years and come away with a deep connection to the country. But that connection wasn't immediate. The whole idea of of becoming part of this little bit repressive state and having to wear hijab all of a sudden and being in a situation where I didn't understand the language or the culture just made me a bit nervous and I kind of overreacted to everybody's response to me. Of course, I was very, you know, very visible as kind of this blonde white woman, blonde in Iranian standards. I have black hair and Dutch standards. So, you know, I'd see these people and I would get really nervous that they were looking at me, that I was doing something wrong, that I wasn't fitting in, that I didn't know how to behave in public or in private. Tori said she didn't feel comfortable right away in Iran, but she does recall the moment when the fog of her nervousness lifted and her fondness for the country began to take root. And then uh, about a couple of weeks into the trip, which actually ended up lasting for four years, my husband's brother called and said, hey, do you want to go camping? And I was like, yeah, let's go camping. That sounds great. And so uh, he said, don't worry, I take care of everything. Everything's going to be set up. Don't worry about a thing. So all I had really was my computer backpack. I didn't have any really, you know, camping gear. I didn't bring any. So I showed up with this computer backpack and like he had this minivan parked outside uh, his mother's house 
and the whole family was just kind of piling it full of, you know, the big IKEA bags, you know, the blue bags. They were filled with stuff. This was how we were going to climb up the mountain with these big giant IKEA bags full of stuff. And then um, we were going to leave in the morning, but we ended up leaving at night. So it was dark by the time we reached the mountain, and we kind of got lost along the way. And it was this really difficult way up the mountain. We ended up spending a, spending the night halfway up the mountain, and just woke up in the morning to this incredibly beautiful scene of like super clean water and all this green grass and. Uh, there was a nomadic family near us. They invited us for breakfast, and there were cows everywhere, and it was just so incredibly beautiful. And then we continued going up the mountain until we got to the site where there were these red crescent tents. So, you know, nobody's told me a thing about what we're doing or where we're going or what the purpose is, and I think, you know, my naive self, like, what am I? Am I in the middle of a refugee camp? Is this... Is there, has there been some kind of environmental crisis here or something and people have to stay in these Red Crescent tents? And we arrive, still nobody's explaining anything to me. And all of these people started, you know, giving me food and taking such great care of me. And the women weren't in hijab and the men were in shorts. And these are things you just don't see in Iran. And I just felt so comfortable and I was having such a good time and I felt really at home. And then we walked up the mountain and to take a uh, to see the ice tunnel. There's a tunnel there that's uh, ice year round, and kind of take a shower in the waterfall. And we came back. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at this campsite. I still had no idea what's going on. That evening, we went to sleep. There was all this, but the, there was kind of this homemade vodka being passed around, and everybody's drinking and singing and talking to each other and it seems like everyone knows each other and I'm thinking oh what a weird coincidence and then um, you know first thing first light of morning everybody's up praying and then that day more and more people came and there were like three-year-olds walking up the mountain and people carrying babies and 90-year-olds walking up the mountain and pretty soon there were 500 people there and it was actually the memorial of a man who had died a year earlier in the mountains. And he was a famous mountain climber in Iran. So all the mountain climber associations came. And that evening we had this incredibly beautiful ceremony for him where people climbed to the tops of the mountains and they lit torches around the mountains. And they, they spoke about him. Him, and there were soldiers speaking about him and ev and you know everyone would get up and say these things and everybody was singing and crying until early in the morning and then when I got back to the town the city we were staying in and I saw these people um, again in their hijab and their scruffy beards and they no longer seemed like uh, strangers to me I knew that the soldier that I saw carrying his AK-47 loved his father and mourned him when he died. And I knew that the man that I thought was staring at me because maybe my scarf was wrong, he would go home and dance with his wife until late at night. 
And I knew that the women that I didn't recognize with their scarves on were women that I connected with at parties and dinners and, play, and other places. And I just felt like I felt for the first time such great love for the culture. And we were there for four years, and it was a difficult time. It wasn't easy for me. But in the end, I feel such a deep connection, and it's really broadened my life. While there are many things that are starkly different about life in Iran versus life in the U.S., many aspects of Iranian culture felt familiar, something that surprised her, given her Jewish background. Actually, I don't think my connection to Iran has as much to do with, uh, with my husband as the fact that I am Jewish and I'm an American Jew. Before I went to Iran, I didn't think that Iran would be the place I would go to discover a similar culture. And I never realized how many of the traits and the humor, the sarcasm, everything that I found to be uniquely Jewish was actually very Iranian. The, the sense of humor is really similar and the sense of family and the strong matriarch at the center of the family, those things were really familiar to me. I mean, it gets to the point where I say like, you know, in Yiddish, if you want to compliment somebody, you insult them. And in Persian, if you want to, if you want to insult somebody, you compliment them too much. So I think there were just so many similarities in the culture and so, much, so many places for me to find comfort and home that I really, really felt a deep, deep connection. Iranian culture also helped bring her out of her shell. I was much more introverted before I went to Iran. I was really shy. I was very self-conscious. And those things just don't fly in Iran. Like, one thing I learned is they're so sociable. And, you know, like the whole idea, don't talk to strangers. No, like Iranians bring up their children to talk to strangers. So it's the exact opposite. I found that really, really exciting in a way. You know, they would ask me to do really weird things like dance at a party. They thought I... One time, my sister-in-law said, oh, you dance foreign really, really well. And I'm a terrible dancer. I dance like Elaine in Seinfeld, for anybody who, who knows that show. And people would come up to me in restaurants and ask me to talk to the entire restaurant about you know, just being an American in Iran. And everywhere I went, people talked to me. And I just realized, okay, I will do anything. I'm, I mean, it sounds terrible to say it sounds weird. Like, I'll just do anything Iranians ask me to do. And it just became so much fun to interact with people in this way and to lose that part of myself that was so kind of self-conscious and uptight. These kinds of connections across country or culture are important, not only because they teach you courage or help you beat your shyness. Tori said when fellow Americans would learn of her connection to Iran, they would treat the country with a dismissive or simplistic attitude. That shocked her. Clearly, she says, more exchanges between Iranians and Americans is needed to combat this lack of compassion and understanding. As if all people are the same, as if they're lumped together into like one kind of, I don't know, mushy rice ball or something. Once we get away from our own culture, we don't see anybody as human. So for me, the interactions are really, really necessary.
When we meet someone new, we often rely on language to communicate with them. By language, I mean we'll string together words in a specific order to get our message across, whether out loud or in writing, whether that's in German or Azeri or Swahili or Japanese. But what if we don't speak the same language? It was really, really like very magical. It was very clear that in communications there are uh, factors that are more important than the language itself, but having a shared language that two people can can speak and understand. That's Violeta Camarasa. So my name is Violeta, Violeta Camarasa. I come originally from, from Spain, and I've been living in Asia, in Hong Kong actually, for the last five years. And I do teach at the university here in Hong Kong about uh, global communication, which is very much related to, the, to, to today's topic. Um, so I, I'm always looking into thinking more about what this means, what global communication, global connection means. She's also a contributor for Global Voices, who has written about China and Spain, as well as edited our Catalan language site. Several years ago, Violeta decided to take a trip with her sister to mainland China, it was during her first year living in Hong Kong, and she wanted to spend a month exploring her new corner of the world. At one point, their travels took them to the Chinese prefecture of Xishuangbana, on the border with Myanmar and Laos. And it was there where she came away with a beautiful lesson. You can connect with someone, someone very different from you, even if you don't speak each other's language. It all started with a walk. So basically, this is the story of me and my sister literally wandering around a very remote area. This, this region is very much like jungle because it's, it's very humid and very tropical with some uh, small villages, small groups of houses and a bit apart from, from the group of houses, a big building, very old and very falling apart. That was very sad, uh, which was actually the school. Uh, it was August, so it was it was pretty quiet, like it was children holidays and we we had this driver, a very friendly driver that we just got him for a day to to just show us around the villages. And at some point he asked us, Would you like would you like to see the school? And I was, yeah, sure. And so we went um, and we were just walking around the school and suddenly uh, we heard some sort of someone was playing music inside a house. Uh, my sister, she's a musician, so she's always very attracted to everything music. And uh, so what happened is that my sister looked really like amazed, and I, I, I told her, like, should we knock on the door and see what happens? So we did that, and, and it was this man who was the director of the school, who was uh, on holiday because there were no kids in the school. Uh, he was living there with, with his family, it was very, very... Mm, small, basic, rural house, and he he didn't speak English. So, but he he we just I, I, don't, I cannot explain how that happened. But actually, it was very clear that he was understanding why we knocked on the door, and uh, he he uh, showed us. He just let us in, invited us to to come into his house, and showed us all his um, his instruments. He had several instruments. Uh, string instruments, traditional Chinese uh, instruments, and uh, flutes. So basically, he was 
showing my sister how to play them. My sister was just immersed. They were completely immersed in their interaction as musicians. So we could say that music was a language there, right? I was just observing from outside how they were interacting and how they could understand what was going on in a very smooth way and a very friendly way as well. While uh, if I could think of the origins of these two people interacting, they were completely different, right? We were playing music for a couple of hours and then um, they were cooking lunch. So they invited us for lunch, improvised, completely improvised, poor woman. And then so just suddenly we found ourselves sitting uh, at the table with um, uh, his wife, director of the school, who were Chinese, but from this region in, in China, you know, that's very diverse. So every region has their own uh, local language. So I could speak a bit of Mandarin, but Mandarin was not working very well there. So I would use a bit of Mandarin, and then they invited as well the English teacher, who was very helpful because he, when I, when he arrived, everything started to be more even more interesting because he could. Uh, explain more stories of just translate what they what the couple wanted to tell us, um, but his English was not very very good anyway. And so yeah, it was it's just a perfect um, example of how sometimes language is just not necessary. Language as in in words. How Violetta found herself thousands of kilometers away from her native country, living in Hong Kong and exploring the mainland was rather simple. I think I was profoundly bored. I was very bored. I, uh, I just thought I had some sort of feeling of life must be something else. But she says the effects of these cross-cultural exchanges, whether they're big moments, like making an international move, or small, like a meal and some music shared between new friends, are profound. We receive a lot of messages through our throughout our lives in education or also through the media and through many other um, ways uh, we receive a lot of messages of separation or we are different from each other there are borders there are lines that separate uh, people from one country from people from the other country or other sorts of lines that separate 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 and for me remembering that we are not so different that we are actually very similar Sometimes, depending on where you live, you don't have to go very far to experience a slice of the big, wide world. Take the melting pot that is London, for example. Have a walk around and you'll encounter not only people from the UK, but also people from India, Poland, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Ireland, Nigeria, Jamaica, Kenya, Turkey, Iran. The list goes on and on. In fact, London is considered one of the most multicultural cities on the planet. About a third of the city's population was born outside of the UK. And on the streets of London, more than a hundred languages are spoken. Uh, the owner was English, and then there was uh, two people from Brazil in the kitchen, and two more from Spain. Uh, there was two French, two guys from China, me from Mexico, uh, others from Ukraine, and uh, 
actually a girl from Italy and from Greece as well. That's Adriana Macias. Hi, my name is Adriana Macias. I've been a translator for Global Voices since 2014. Adriana is an interpreter and a translator, both professionally and for Global Voices. She's based in Mexico, but has traveled all over the world. I think I am curious, curious to learn, curious to know what is the unknown for me. You know, curious to know what it's more, to know how the things are moving in different places. The same things you do in your place, how are they doing in different cities or, or countries? That curiosity led her to move to London after university and work for several months as a waitress in a cafe. So in her case, at least, she did travel rather far to experience a cross-section of the world. But in her mind, she was trading one country for another. What she got, however, was much more international. No, never. I never thought this, uh, this so multicultural people there, you know, all together in the same place. I never, I never thought that, yeah. Adriana said working in such a multicultural environment challenged the stereotypes that she and her colleagues had about certain places in the world, as well as gave them an opportunity to fill in each other's gaps in knowledge. I think it was very, very curious, particular, because we all mixed, you know, working at the same place, doing the same things, but always talking about maybe how is do you how do you say this in your country or how do you say this thing in your language? And actually, I learned a lot there because, for example, the people from China there didn't know why we as Americans from Mexico speak the same uh, Spanish with the Spanish guys, you know? They never knew about the conquest and those things. So, yeah, actually, I think I learned a lot from uh, people from France, actually. She told me, okay, what things from Mexico more than Frida Kahlo? You know, everybody knows Frida Kahlo. And I said, okay, Salma Hayek. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, she's from, from Mexico. And she didn't realize, she didn't believe it. When I was uh, talking with the people from Ukraine, Olga, my friend from Olga, she never, she thought that people from Mexico are, you know, short, tanned, uh, brown, and a uh, little fat. And for example, I'm not. And actually, she thought I was from Ukraine. And I was not. And she was shocked. She said, are you from Mexico? Really? But she had the perception that all the people from Mexico is the same. And when she met me, she realized it's not. And she was in shock. So, you know, they have a perception of us, and it's not. And she says these types of experiences are important because they expose you to mannerisms and habits and social norms that may be different than your own. So next time you meet someone from another country, a misunderstanding over a handshake or the volume of your voice won't get in the way of your communication. I think when you know and when you can meet people from different countries, you can know how they live or how they have the perception of the life and how they handle in the life because at the future you don't know with who are you going to be or who are you going to meet and it's important to know the nationality to know their own customs and behavior so don't be respect and can have a very good communication, you know, but because in the end is what we are looking for, to have a, a good communication and good relation between, between others, you know. 
are lots of different ways we humans carve up the world. Borders are one. We draw lines around chunks of land and water and say everyone within those lines are part of the same country. Language is another. We lump together peoples by what words come out of their mouth. These divisions can give us a sense of belonging, but they can also throw up walls, create a sense of us versus them that limits our access to and our understanding of whomever falls on the other side of that line we've drawn. What to do? Well, in the case of language, we can learn to speak more of them. Making the effort to better our communication with other people in this world can bring those walls, at least some of them, crashing down. Ambu Hibula is the name of the village. You can't even find it on a map. On the west side, it's, it's just sea. And on the east side, it's completely surrounded by sand dunes. So it's utterly isolated in every sense of the word. And yet we were talking about democracy and how to run a village or a community and how to have a participatory form of democracy. And we were having this uh, conversation in English and French and German. But the guy, obviously, whose native language is Malagasy, would also throw in some Malagasy words and then explain them in German and then the German explained back into French. That's Joey Ayoub. Uh, hi, so my name is Joey Ayoub and I'm currently one of the regional editors uh, for the MENA region at Global Voices. He's also a freelance writer, originally from Lebanon, who is preparing to pursue a PhD. Joey speaks several languages. I speak uh, six languages. I'm fluent in English, French and Arabic. Uh, my Spanish is quite advanced and I'm conversational in Italian and Hebrew. And he thinks languages are an important tool to connect with people across borders and across cultures. But he said he wasn't always aware of their power and can recall the moment when he came to realize this. The summer of 2011, when I went to uh, Madagascar. So it was my first um, trip outside of Europe where I would just go there to visit my family members. So in a way, it was my first trip on my own. It was the first real travel on my own, in a sense. And I was 20 years old. Uh, I went there on a sort of mission of volunteering, if you want, uh, with the World Wildlife Fund. And we stayed there, we stayed in a village in the south of Madagascar, a very isolated village, uh, for two months in total. Uh, so there we basically, as I said, we lived in a village and we had to uh, live with about uh, 400 people, I think the population was. We were about six, we were six volunteers, uh, each from a different country. So there was me, there was one from China, one from Kenya, one from Germany, uh, one from Norway, and one from the United States. And while we were there, we obviously struggled at first because the people in that village uh, did not speak, most of them did not speak uh, French, which was the language that we would communicate anyway, obviously, with people in the capital, in the north. They would all be speaking uh, a southern dialect of Malagasy, and neither of us spoke that language. So. There was this one time, we were going, we were going by the sea, by the coast. The village was by the coast. We were, we had to do some reconnaissance mission of just finding out how many sea, sea turtles were killed uh, in the past few weeks. So we did that, and we found a number that was lower than what we expected, which was obviously very good. And then we went back to the village, and we had a meeting with the local president, as they call him. We we just called him president in French, and he was a democratically elected uh, man, a village elder in a sense chosen in a democratic way and we, we actually took part of the process as kind of observers in a way it was quite interesting but in any case we went to his house me and my friend Eric who's from Norway 
uh, we just sat there for a while and we had tea, we chatted and everything. His French was uh, conversational, so we could manage to speak a bit. Uh, he was a very, very fascinating guy. He was in his, at the time, he was in his mid-60s, if I'm not mistaken. He had very little education. He just went to a local school at the nearby uh, village, which had a school. Because the village where we were in had just one school and it had about 300 children in it with one teacher. But we were talking with this man. We found out that not only was he multilingual, uh, so he spoke not just the language of the South, but he actually taught himself French, as I said. He did not learn it in school. But he was actually learning some German, weirdly enough. And the uh, Norwegian uh, person I was talking about uh, didn't know some German. And so they started speaking in German. And I just found myself this situation where I was in the South, in a village that was literally about 14 hours away from the capital, a bit, a bit more, I think. No connection, no internet, no electricity, uh, no running water even. We would uh, do like what they would do and just go to the well and pick up water and uh, try and sanitize it as much as we can and then drink it as simple as that. We would boil it sometimes. And yet I would find myself in this small hut, completely isolated from my quote-unquote usual life, and yet having this conversation with someone where he would be speaking in German and the Norwegian guy would be translating from German to English, or to French, I mean. And I would be responding in French, and then he would respond in German again. So we were just talking about local issues. Uh, the drought that had been happening uh, before that, I think a year or two years before that, there was a hurricane about a decade before that. Uh, the corruption of the national government, which they feel has no connection with uh, their own government when they speak of the North. They just speak of the North as though they are a completely separate uh, country, like there's no connection between them whatsoever. And indeed, the dialect is very, very uh, strikingly different. And this just blew my mind, because obviously at the time I was just 20 years old. Uh, I had barely left uh, Lebanon. I grew up in a very small village in Lebanon where everyone speaks a mix of uh, Lebanese Arabic and a bit of French. And suddenly I find myself in this situation where everyone is so multilingual. I don't know, the, the realization that day specifically that the world is a complicated place. <laughs> it really, really touched me. And I guess, like, since then is when I really started learning languages in the first place. It's around this time that Joey says a worldview began to take shape in him, one that prioritizes fairness, justice, and global connection. Part of that worldview is critical of borders. It's not just language, it's also the freedom of movement and all that comes with it. So I have two passports, one of which is the Lebanese one, which doesn't really get you anywhere. And the other one is the Argentinian one, which gets you into more places. And growing up, I had the Argentinian one. And then they changed the law when I was 18. So I had uh, to reapply for it. So I stayed with the Lebanese one for a few years, and I got back the Argentinian one about a year ago. Uh, when I was with the Lebanese one, I was extreme, only with the Lebanese one, I was extremely aware of what borders meant. Because every time, obviously, I wanted to see my father who lives in Switzerland, I had to apply for a visa at the Swiss embassy in Beirut. They would give it to me for about six months, if I was lucky, a year, and then do it again every time I would travel again. And obviously, being in that village in the south of Madagascar, these people didn't have ID cards, let alone passports. So when we would be speaking, uh, when I was with one of the volunteers who's from Kenya, and we would be speaking to them about traveling and these kinds of things, for them, Kenya was also something that really is from another planet. It was really something that was uh, unheard of. And they would be speaking about her as the African, because she was from mainland Africa, whereas they are from Madagascar. In my, so with my relation to border, 
it just it became something that I progressively and eventually very aggressively started hating more and more. I used to understand the rationale behind it, sense of security, sense of belonging maybe because you know you delineate a sort of territory that's yours and there that's you, you say those are my people and the people outside of it are not my people. But then you really get into it and you start learning about it and you start really understanding how all of this is man-made essentially. And it's not that I didn't know that it was man-made before, but once you really understand how the borders were created and how violent the existence of borders uh, is, like borders cannot exist without maintaining a sort of level of violence against those who seek to trespass them. Uh, I just started hating it and I'm still to this day someone who will try until I die to remove borders as much as possible, make them irrelevant anyway. Not so long afterward, the wonder of languages that had been demonstrated to him so clearly in Madagascar was cemented when he traveled to Peru and made the effort to learn Spanish before going. When you learn a different language, so when, when I started learning Spanish, for example, and I went to Peru uh, for a couple of months the year after, so in 2012, I really did not feel like a, like a tourist. I didn't feel like someone who was visiting, because not only did I learn the language before going there, and had gotten to a decent level by the time I got there. But I used that language to buy local books on Peruvian history, Peruvian politics, and it was something that I could actually discuss with people who were there. So I would sit at a cafe. I almost did nothing for three, four weeks except doing that, basically. Sit at a cafe, read a book, and talk to someone about it. And they would always be very interested in seeing this foreigner not only speaking in Spanish, okay, that many people can learn that a language, but also knowing about their politics or the politics of their countries, of the issues that affect them or whatever, or at least wanting to know about them while doing it in Spanish. And that kind of um, erased the um, boundaries between us in a way progressively. And eventually it just became me talking to someone about something that is purely human. And for me, language is really a big part of it. That brings us to the end of this episode of Into the Deep. Do you have a story of global connection you want to share with us? We'd love to hear it. In fact, we'll be launching an essay contest soon on the topic of global experiences, so stay tuned for more details on our website, globalvoices.org, and our Facebook and Twitter pages. This is a podcast of Global Voices, an international network of passionate people who keep tabs on the online conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. The inspiring work of all of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors made this episode possible. So a big, big thank you to all of you out there. And a special shout out to Kat Betwigas, who helped us with the music selection. If you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Beer Demet Yasemin by Turku, Nomads of the Silk Road, the songs Ray Gun, Faster Faster Brighter, and Discovery Harbor by Blue Dot Sessions, Rite of Passage by Kevin McLeod, 
Make a Life Instrumental by Nick Jaina, Terminal 2 by Corey Gray, and Pieces of the Present by Scott Gratton. Thanks for coming along with us into the deep. We'll have a new episode for you soon. Until then. <laughs>